Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. One Kings chapter two verses one to twenty five. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies. Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei son of Gera and Benjaminite of Behurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, do you come peacefully? He answered, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked on me as their king. But things changed and the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. So he continued, Please ask King Solomon, and he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. The king replied, make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. King Solomon answered his mother, why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? 
You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab, son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David has founded a dynasty for me as he promised. Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. Amen. Well, in 1976, two mates, both called Steve, started a business making and selling stuff in their garage. They had real haircuts in those days. Today, that company is the third richest in the world. That company makes the phones in many pockets. It makes the laptops on many desks, including the one that's being used to run this broadcast now. It's possible you're even watching it on one of their devices as well. And they even make the iPad that I'm speaking from right now. The company, of course, is Apple. But things didn't always look so rosy for that company. By 1997, Steve Jobs, one of the founders, had long since left the company he started. It had gone rapidly downhill, and it was on the verge of bankruptcy when Steve Jobs returned. And with his inimitable creative genius, he turned it around to produce world-changing and, might I say, highly profitable products. But another difficult moment came for the company in 2011 when Steve Jobs died from a rare form of cancer. The question was who would take over the reins? And, and would he or she have the, the single-minded visionary leadership to drive the company forward in the right direction? Moments of transition for a company or for a kingdom are moments of danger. And we encountered a moment just like that last week in the nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. Here we are in the book of Kings, which, as the name suggests, documents the line of kings in the nation of Israel. The background to that is that God had given a promise to one of those kings, King David, that his throne and line would endure forever. That a king in the line of David would one day bring salvation and blessing to all the nations. And the question that forms the backdrop to this book is, which king will be the one? It's clear that that king won't be King David. Why? Well, amongst other reasons, David is on his deathbed as we find him today. The question last week was, who will succeed him? Remember, times of transition are times of danger, and so it proved. Now, though the kingdom had been promised to Solomon, one of David's other sons, by another woman, Adonijah, attempted and almost pulled off a coup. But last week we saw that God was faithful to his promises, the coup was defeated, and the line of succession continued as it had been promised through Solomon. 
But today we see that the danger isn't gone. There are two questions that hang over today's passage. First of all, what kind of king will Solomon be? Will he be a godly leader who leads the people into divine blessing or the other kind? And secondly, are we sure the kingdom is secure in Solomon's hands? After all, the conspirators are still on the scene. And if you want a third question, we could add, when all is said and done today, what will we learn about our God from this passage? Remember, we are not David or Solomon or any of these other characters, but we do have the same God. Well, no more faffing. Let's get going. The first of two points today is this. Kingdom obedience. The setting, as I said, is David on his deathbed. He's given his final words of instruction. These are his famous last words to Solomon. He says this, chapter 2, verse 2. I am going the way of all the earth, he said. In other words, he's going to cark it. So be strong. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as is written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now look, as one dying king speaks to the next, I guess there are all sorts of things he could have passed on. Tips on military strategy, advice on national governments, economic matters, or whatever. But David says nothing about any of those. Now no doubt they're all important in governing a kingdom, but they aren't the thing of greatest importance. Instead, as one Bible expert puts it, David turns to the fountain from which the life of the entire kingdom flows, which is faithfulness to the Lord's commands. So David speaks not about military matters. He doesn't give guidance on governance or constitutional counsel. He speaks about obedience to the Lord. The most important thing in the kingdom is that Solomon, the king, listens to God's voice. That means carefully studying the scriptures, the Bible, or in Solomon's case, uh, listening to the written word of the law and the spoken word of the prophets and crucially responding in obedience to God's word. It means walking in obedience, verse 3, to God. Now, often we picture life as a journey, don't we? We often say that. And so David effectively says to Solomon, on your journey through life, here's how you should travel. Every step must be a step with God. Every way you walk, obey God. Walk the way of God. Keep the commands and laws of God. That is more important than anything else. Now, it's worth breaking off here and remembering for a moment that the whole nation of Israel, including David and Solomon, belong to God as his people 
not because they deserve it, certainly not because they've earned it through perfect moral performance. No, they belong to God by God's grace. He's chosen them. He's brought them into what we would call a covenant relationship with him by his grace. I can tell you that because of the end of verse 3. When David says, obey the law of God, he specifies what he means by that by calling it the law of Moses. Now, when was the law of Moses given? Well, it was given, you might know, at Mount Sinai. That is after God has chosen his people, after he's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The pattern for them is the same for us. Do you see? God saves his people by grace, but then he transforms them and commands them to obey his words. So here's David on his deathbed. And if it's not too morbid, it got me thinking a bit about my own deathbed. If I was suddenly hit by a bus and had a last few words to speak to Morag, what would I say? And Morag, who's listening, I'm sorry if this is a bit morbid. I think my last words, apart from ouch, would be, please bring up the kids to know Jesus. And kids, if you're watching, daddy's not going near any buses, don't worry. But deathbed moments bring a certain clarity, don't they, to matters. And yet when we reach our own deathbeds, whenever that day comes, I wonder how we will look back on our lives. Will we be able to look back and say that we observed the law of God, that we walked closely with him? Will we be able to look back and say, not, not perfectly, but, but that we were careful to obey and to follow him? Or will we look back with bitter regret at the wasted years when we gave our lives to pursuing other things instead of God? Will you be able to look back and say you prioritized belonging to Jesus and obeying Jesus. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn to him. And by the way, this isn't just some morbid thought. This is actually about living the good life. Walking the right way. This is about doing life as it's really meant to be done. Life as life is done best. See, if you're a Christian, you have been saved by the grace of God, saved because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience that you haven't, and yet went to die on the cross for your sake, in your place, for your sin. He's taken your sin and the death and judgment you deserved, and in its place given you forgiveness and new life with God. You belong to God, if you're a Christian, purely because of this unmerited act of kindness. That is, if you've accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe there are those watching today who, who've never done that. The offer that Jesus makes is still an offer open to you to come and find in him complete forgiveness and new life with God. Now that is the beginning of the story, but it's not the end of the story. 
The gospel that, that saves us, that good news that forgives us and transforms us, also invites us and compels us to change. If you are a Christian, if you have made that response, God's own Holy Spirit works in you. And the Holy Spirit works in you partly through compelling words like these, to observe the word of God, to be careful to obey the commands of God. And we do that, of course, because it's right. But more than that, because this is the good life. This is the blessed life. So when I refuse, for example, to let myself be drawn into lust or sexual sin, I'm doing myself good. There's blessing in that. When I refuse to let myself be drawn into slander or gossip, I'm doing myself good. There's blessing there. When I put aside my idols and worship God, be they idols of money or comfort or the opinions of others, whatever it is, I'm doing myself good. There's blessing there. When I tell the truth instead of bending the truth, that's the best way to live. When I turn my back on coveting and, and embrace contentment with the lot that God has assigned me, there's blessing in that. When I honor this day as the Lord's day, a day devoted to rest and to worship, prioritizing being here, well not here, but you know what I mean, with God's people. That's good. It's good for us. It's God's design. You see, there's blessing in that. One commentator puts it this way. Speaking about these words in 2 Kings, he says this. These words are not only for Davidic kings. These are words for all who belong by grace to that kingdom. Jesus speaks of the wise as those who hear his words and do them, Matthew chapter 7. Solomon's obedience, back in 2 Kings now, says David, will also play a role in the bigger picture of God's promises to the nation. Now, of course, ultimately, and we'll see this in the book, God will ultimately keep his promises despite our unfaithfulness. That will certainly become clear. But without obedience, there's no real enjoyment of the blessings of God's covenants. Now, it may be a cheesy old hymn, depending on your taste in hymns, but these words are true. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's kingdom obedience. So if you're a Christian... How's your obedience? Anyway, David impresses upon Solomon the need to obey God, but he also says some other things, things that, if we're honest, on face value might make us feel a bit uncomfortable. So that's today's second point. Number two, kingdom dangers. The rest of the chapter... We didn't read it all, but the rest of the chapter is, is largely a combination of David giving warnings to Solomon about certain individuals who are a threat to the kingdom, and then Solomon acting to destroy or remove those enemies of the kingdom. 
Now, we don't have time to do every detail, but to give you the long story short, David, for example, warns Solomon about Joab, verses 5 and 6. We met him last week as he conspired against David in the attempted coup. Although we find out today that that wasn't the sum total of his crimes. Here, David also refers to an incident, which you can look up if you want, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, where Joab commits murder. And later on in our chapter, verses 28 to 34, Solomon has Joab killed. Speaking of the coup, Solomon also today confronts Adonijah, who you remember wrongly set himself up as king. Now, maybe surprisingly, at the end of chapter 1, Solomon decides to spare Adonijah's life, which is maybe not what you expect in a coup. He shows him mercy, he sends him home, and he says to him, if I can paraphrase, if he conducts himself well, then no harm will come to him. But today, Adonijah, in what can only be described as an idiotic move, presses for more. He asks for the hand of Abishag in marriage. Now, you remember Abishag was the beautiful girl who attended King David in his last days. Now, she wasn't David's wife, but nonetheless, she had a position of power and and closeness to David. Adonijah's coup has failed, but it, it turns out he's still playing power games. To try and marry her is actually just another power play, because if he gets the hand of David's woman in marriage, well, that might buy him more influence, it might gather him more followers. And this is too much for King Solomon to stand another attempted cue, and so Solomon, verse 25, strikes him down. Now, there are more examples of that too in this chapter. Solomon is also warned by David about Shemai, son of Gera, verse 8, and ultimately he strikes him down, verse 46. Solomon also removes Abiathar, the high priest, from his privileged role. Now, the question is this what are we to make of all of this? Well, it's a difficult passage, I've wrestled with it all week. But I think there are three things to learn here, A, B, and C. Here's A. God keeps his promises. Solomon's kingdom is firmly established. See, if we step back from all the details here, that the headline in this passage is clear, and it's there in verse 12. Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. And you can see almost the same phrase repeated in verse 46. The point is this, one way or another, we see yet again that despite all the odds and all the plotting and planning and all the opposition, despite all of that, God keeps his promises. He's promised that David's line will endure, and it does. The throne was promised to Solomon, and it's delivered safely to him. God says he's working out his plan of salvation in this way, through this family line. And despite everything looking pretty precarious, despite the politics and the people and the threats and the attempted cues, ultimately, those who stand in the way of God's word and God's plans are swept aside and God's promises are kept. And that is good news for you watching today.
It means that God's word can always be trusted. And it's especially good news for us today because it shows that God is unshakably committed to bringing about his plan of salvation through David's line. And of course, we know that the line of David and Solomon and all the rest leads down the generations to King Jesus, who comes to save us. We are beneficiaries of this promise. God is completely committed to that. Nothing stands in his way of saving his people. But next, letter B, see that God destroys his enemies. So don't oppose him. We are told in scripture that the wages of sin, that is what sin earns us, is death. And so we shouldn't be surprised when God's enemies face that fate. When we read of these people who are put to death we should remember who they are Joab is a multiple murderer and conspirator against God's king and God's plans Abiathar the priest tries to bring down God's king and subvert God's plans and he was supposed to be a priest in fact if you dig a little deeper into him and his family tree you'll see that he is a priest in the house or line of Eli And if you know the story from the book of 1 Samuel, he sinned so greatly against the Lord by abusing his position of power for personal gain. God promised to punish that line of priests, and so here it is. Abiathar's life is spared, but he's removed from his privileged position of priesthood. We could go on, but you see the point. God is a God of great love, but never forget he's also a fierce God of great justice. And that's good news, not bad news, because we all know instinctively that injustice is wrong. So here is a reminder that all who reject God, as each of us have done, deserve his condemnation which should make us see again how great the gospel is Jesus comes in the line of David to save us from sin which is good news because your sin and mine is very real we deserve God's wrath and judgment in Christ we get his grace and mercy so let me plead with you You need to receive that forgiveness. Don't remain an enemy of God. Read this passage and see that being an enemy of God does not end well. Finally, let us see. God shows patience and mercy. It is worth noticing that for all these individuals, although God's justice does come, it does fall, it doesn't come quickly. In almost every case, these multiple offenders are given multiple chances. Adonijah, who attempts a coup, is amazingly allowed to live. As long as he doesn't do it again. But then, of course, he does do it again. 
Abiathar, who is at the heart of the coup as well, who belongs to the priestly line of Eli, does so much that is wrong. The shock here is that he is allowed to live and is just removed from his role. There are those others like Barzillai, excuse my pronunciation, of Gilead, verse 7, whom David singles out not for justice but for kindness. In other words, in every instance, even when God's justice does come, God's justice is never rash. God's justice is his settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that is wrong. But God is patient and he leaves time for repentance. We do need to remember that our time for repentance will not last forever. But God gives us time. Well, so here we are. We land at the end of another passage in 1 Kings. Once again, do you see? God's word, his promises prove to be faithful. God's enemies are swept aside. And God's kingdom marches on. The plans of God move forward slowly but surely. From this line of kings will come the king of kings. Who will reign on David's throne forever. The one who will have great patience with sinners. The one who brings mercy and grace to sinners through his own death on the cross. The Lord Jesus himself. Who is now risen and ruling and reigning on the throne of heaven forever. If you're a Christian, he is your faithful saviour. And he, as your Lord, commands you to obedience. Let's pray together, shall we? Maybe just take a moment of quiet reflection to think on what the Lord has been saying to you particularly through this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ancient story which tells the ancient tale of your justice but also your mercy and of your unshakable commitment to your promises and your plan of salvation. Lord, we pray, help us to find our place in that plan by coming to Christ as Savior and following him as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.